It's time now for super psychologist, Dr. Mara Carpell, and your golden years. Welcome to Dr. Mara Carpell and your golden years. This evening and every Sunday evening at 5 p.m. Central Time and at 6 p.m. Eastern Time right here on blogtalkradio.com and on drmaracarpell.com. And today is Sunday, January 28th, 2024, and I'm psychologist Dr. Mara Carpell, and we are back live with another great program for you. And Art Mendoza of Accomplished Entertainment, producer of this program, is here with us, of course, to make the show run smoothly as usual. And in a little while after the break, we'll be joined by Jake Sloan, civil rights advocate and labor management consultant, to discuss his new book, Standing Tall, Willie Long versus the U.S. Government at Mare Island Naval Shipyard. And this book is about Jake's experience as one of the original 21ers, a group of young African-American workers who challenged the largest West Coast U.S. naval base to provide equal opportunities and wages, influencing the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So that will be a very interesting discussion, I'm sure. And then later in the program, if we have a little time, I'll speak a little bit more about regaining passion and purpose after loss and in such a chaotic time. And after the show, you can hear this program again by going to my website, and the link to the podcast will be posted later tonight along with all of the website links and any other information given by my guest on the program. And you can also hear the podcast in as soon as five minutes after the show ends by going directly to Blog Talk Radio, that's B-L-O-G, talkradio.com, slash your golden years. And you'll also be able to hear it on Apple Podcasts. And for information from prior shows and to listen to all the previous programs since we've been on Blog Talk Radio for the past, I don't know, 11 years, um, go to my website, drmaricarpell.com, go to blogtalkradio.com slash years, and you can also hear them on Apple Podcasts. And for upcoming information, upcoming shows and events, go to my Facebook page, Dr. Mara Carpell, Your Golden Years. This show is produced by Accomplice Entertainment and Psyched Up Productions. So we're going to take a very brief break right now but to play some of our other sponsors' commercials, but don't go anywhere because it'll be very brief. And when we come back, we'll be speaking with Jake Sloan, civil rights advocate and author of the book, Standing Tall. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Super psychologist Dr. Mara Carpell will be back after words from our sponsors. Are you or a loved one a Medicare beneficiary? Help save you and Medicare money by stopping Medicare fraud. Fraud happens when Medicare is billed services or supplies you never received. There are three easy things you can do to prevent fraud. Review your Medicare claims for accuracy. 
protect your personal information and look for any suspicious activity. For more information or to report fraud, call Medicare at 1-800-MEDICARE or call your local Medicare SHIP program at 1-800-252-9240. Please visit us on the web at www.drmaricarpel.com. And and we're back. If you're just joining us, this is Dr. Mara Carpell and your golden years right here on blogtalkradio.com and on drmaricarpell.com. And now joining us on the phone is Jake Sloan, civil rights advocate and labor management consultant. And he's here to discuss his book, Standing Tall, Willie Long versus the U.S. Government at Mare Island Naval Shipyard. Welcome, Jake. Thank you. Good afternoon to all. It's great to have you here. I just want to mention to you um, and for our listeners as well, there is a slight delay when we speak like this. So just like about a second or a half a second. It's just good to have that in mind. Um, so I'm really interested in talking about the, your book, but why don't we start with just, uh, just a couple of moments about your background and who you are, so listeners know who you are. Uh, my, again, my name is Jake Sloan, I'm a management consultant, mainly in the Bay Area in California, but throughout the state. I've been working at a labor, as a labor management consultant now for some 35 years. Before that, I did uh, several things all related to uh, the, the, the need to integrate the building trades with African Americans and to, then to assure that they got fair promotions and equal opportunity in all areas of that work. To prepare for that, I was a, a pipe fitter at Maryland Naval Shipyard some years ago. And that is where my story begins. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's talk about that story. Uh, let's talk about your book, Standing Tall. Um, first of all, who was, who was Willie Long? He makes it into the title. Who, who was Willie Long and who were the original 21ers? Okay, then just a little background. Willie Long is... In 1960, there were about 1,000 African-Americans working at Maryland Naval Shipyard. 1,000, they had experienced discrimination in hiring, promotions, uh, equal pay, the range of uh, discrimination that was abroad at that time. And that had been uh, the prevailing situation at the island for actually more than 30 years. In 1961, after uh, thinking about it for some time, Willie Long took the lead in organizing the disgruntled workers to file a complaint against the federal government. After several months of difficult organizing on the shipyard, Willie Long had convinced, along with others who were organizing with him, had convinced only 25 out of the 1,000 to join in filing a complaint against the federal government. Willie Long was the leader in organizing. He was the leader in dealing with the leadership at the shipyard. 
and ultimately in Washington, D.C. over the next several years. Uh, that group became known as the original 21ers because at first only 21 signed the complaint, and then over the next few years, another four signed. It was difficult organizing on the shipyard because the prevailing thinking there at the time was that African Americans were being treated more than fairly. And that was reinforced by the fact that many, many of the workers at the shipyard, both white and black, had come from the South, where uh, such things as kid pay and unequal opportunity in pay. Uh, unequal opportunity in promotions and training had been the order of the day. So uh, mm-hmm. it was difficult to organize. And in addition to that, it was dangerous because if we had been discovered before the complaint was signed, many of us, especially the ones who were not veterans, would have been fired. And we knew that because it had happened before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I was reading in your book that you said it was really difficult to gather up all the information from way back when because not much of it was written down because a lot of it was kept in secrecy. Everything was kept in secrecy because of the fear that if we had been discovered, uh, we would have been fired. So Mm -hmm. secrecy was paramount. In fact, Thinking was so paramount that we didn't even talk with uh, our families about it. Only one wife, as I began to do my research, I realized that only one of the wives of the men who were involved had ever been told anything about what we were doing. And, of course, we didn't keep notes. Uh, Many of us were very good at uh, being pipe fitters and electricians and all the trades that we were involved in, but we had no training in history or taking notes. Uh, It simply was just, uh, it was not a paramount thing. So that when I began to research the book, which was many, many years after the fact, uh, at least 40, I could find no uh, notes that had been taken. The person who probably would have taken the best notes would have been uh, Willie Long, and he had been dead for some time, and his family had uh, no knowledge of any notes. So very difficult. Mm -hmm. So I... Well, to write the book, I had to depend on interviews uh, uh, with the workers who were still alive. And when we started this process, only were still eight were still alive. So it was difficult. Wow. Uh, going. I was able to get some information at the Naval Archives, but uh, it was very limited. I really had to depend on the interviews. And I also interviewed uh, non-African Americans, uh, and some of them were still bitter about it, thinking that, we had been given unfair uh, advantages because we filed the complaint. So hmm. it was difficult to do the research, but very rewarding. Uh, it's, it's one of the best things I've ever done in my life. Because yeah. I wanted, the, the, the story had never been told, really, because of the secrecy, uh, and the guys were dying. So I wanted to tell the story, if for no other reason, to, but to share it with their families. And then someone mm-hmm. convinced me not to do to a little uh, uh, a pamphlet to, to share with the families, but to write a book, and I did, and I'm very glad that I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it is really an important piece of history. I mean, you, you wrote about how you guys won that case, and that helped 
to pave the way for the Civil Rights Act of 1964. I won't claim that it, uh, it paved the way to uh, the writing of the Civil Rights Act. I think it okay. influenced it or could have. Okay. But okay. So it was, it was a piece of the puzzle. <laughs> it was it was part of the civil rights movement that was active all across the country at that time, because we were very much influenced by the civil rights movement. I, I had been mm-hmm. told for many years by Willie Long and others that they met with the man who was the uh, legal counsel for the President's Committee on Equal Employment Opportunity, and he was one of the people who wrote the Civil Rights Act, that they thought it influenced it. But uh, to be honest, I never was able to prove it. I went to the University of Michigan, the, uh, the legal advisor's papers were, and reviewed them, and I couldn't find proof of it, but we believe that it influenced the writing of the Civil Rights Act. It certainly influenced the way African-Americans were treated in the workforce, not only at Mary Island going forward, but at all the institutions around the, uh, around the country. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that part you do know. You do know as a fact. So it's, it's an I important that, piece uh, of history. And I know that it wasn't immediate. Uh, but change started to come about at Mary Island. Uh, mm-hmm. It was slow change, but it was a very significant change over the years. It took a number of years for the change to take effect, but uh, some some of the men got very significant promotions over the years. Ironically, some of the best promotions went to people who refused to sign the complaint out of fear. Uh, one of the 21ers called them the apple catchers, because they were afraid to shake the tree, but when we shook the tree and the apples were falling off, they were there to catch them. Okay. <laughs> I never heard that, that expression, but that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, so maybe for listeners who aren't familiar, I think most people should be familiar if they know history, but maybe you could talk a little bit about the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Well, it, uh, it, it was there were various parts to it, but the, the part that mm-hmm. we think is most significant and probably was influenced by our actions was it it addresses and forbids discrimination in hiring, uh, in firing, training, promotions. All the things that we were concerned with are addressed in the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Mhm. Mhm. Right. So, and that, you know, we have that to this day where, what is it, it, would it now be called the EEOC? Yes. Mm-hmm. That's part of mm-hmm. it. Yeah. And, right. and, and after that, after that time, at every one of the federal installations, I know the naval one, there was an EEOC officer in place to address just those issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And nobody can be denied being hired. Nobody can be fired because of um, race, religion, anything like that, right? And it even includes now disability. That's supposed to be the case. It's not always the case, but uh, it's supposed to be precluded. Uh, But I, I will say that it's not always the case. And we started... Excuse me, the actions in 1961 
1996, when the shipyard closed, there were still significant challenges uh, for fairness in promotions and not so mm-hmm. much equal pay. The equal pay was a big issue at the time because uh, in the trades there, the production shops, as they call them, you could start either as an apprentice or a helper and work yourself up to becoming what they call a mechanic or a journey person. Quite often, there were African-Americans working on the shipyard who had been helpers for 10 or 15 years. They did the same work as uh, journey people, but they were paid as uh, helpers, which was significantly less. Mm-hmm. The other thing that didn't really change uh, was that the leadership at the shipyard and the leadership in Washington never admitted to discrimination. What they said was that all the things that we complained about were the result of misunderstandings. Well, mm-hmm. there was no misunderstanding to us when we were paid $3 an hour for the same work the whites were paid $4 for. Right. Uh, there was no mis- uh, misunderstanding when the best pipe fitter at the shipyard out of probably 700 pipe fitters had worked there for 30 years and couldn't get a promotion and never did. Mm-hmm. Uh, so mm-hmm. it changed a lot, but uh, many things stayed about the same. Right. Yeah. Now, I'm I'm sure there's still a lot of discrimination going on, except that now that there are laws, there are attorneys that can help with that, right? They can that you can actually sue, which you didn't have before, right? Right. And you also got, uh, you know, uh, John Edmondson couldn't get a promotion, but quite a few of the young guys who came in to the shipyard later got significant promotions up to the point that they were leaders in their various production shops. And, of course, they wouldn't go along with that kind of discrimination. So it had tremendous impact. It didn't have the immediate impact or the kind of long-term impact that we hoped it would, but a lot of, a lot of impact. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I know that you wrote in the book and it was sort of an interesting, um, I guess, just, just the position that all of this began in 1961, which was the year of the birth of President Obama. And you, right talk about how that couldn't have even been a possibility had not all of these things. Your situation as as well as many other civil rights fights that were going on at that time, if that hadn't been going on, he never would have even had a dream of being president. Well, actually, Obama said it himself, that if we're, we're not for what was going on in the civil rights movement, doing because he would have never he never would have heard of that but the civil rights movement around the country that influenced a lot of people uh if that hadn't been taking place he never would have become president of the united states the groundwork was mm-hmm. laid for it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. absolutely and I you know the civil that. rights movement had, had tremendous impact uh when we when um some of the uh, men who were afraid to sign the complaint were saying that we were risking everything. Willie Long made a statement that I've never forgotten, and I don't think any of the men forgot over the years. His statement was that if the people in the South were risking their lives and being beaten up every day, 
I can risk this little job for what is right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And he did. Yeah. And you know the you know the way uh, looking at it you know pulling back the broader scope is that this whole movement really helped a lot of people, right? And and you know it it helped women. Um, you know the all of these you know um, fights were um, against discrimination, affect people of all races and religions and gender um i mean we all win right well yeah you you may remember that in in the book i quoted willie as saying it wasn't just the black people who were discriminated against we we took action to help ourselves because that was difficult enough but the asians the hispanics the the chinese when i say asian Filipinos who were working at the shipyard were all discriminated against, and women were discriminated mm-hmm. against. And mm-hmm. all that changed several years after the action that we took. The sad thing is, is that uh, because of the secrecy, when uh, and, and we never really talked about it over the years, when the shipyard closed, many of the people who worked there, in, including many people who benefited from it, had never heard of us. No one ever wrote mm-hmm. about us. First thing that was written about the uh, what we did didn't take place until probably 2005. Uh, a writer at the Vallejo uh, Times Herald heard the story from a nephew of one of the 29, 21ers and thought it was a story, and ran uh, I think four different articles about the uh, about the 21ers. But before that, virtually no one had ever heard of us. And the books that were written about Rhode Island and the closure, they talked about everything but us. They talked about uh, blacks on Rhode Island a little bit, but they talked about the, the the guys who got the benefits and wouldn't catch the apples or, you know, mm-hmm. wouldn't take the apples. Uh, right. It was a story that was largely unknown. And then the guy who wrote the stories, his name was Matthias Gaffney, did a good job, but none of the guys who were still with the story was complete. And so I decided that I would write what I thought was a complete story. But I don't think the complete story will ever be written because we didn't keep notes and, it, you know, it was 40 or 50 years after the fact that I wrote the book. So I did the best that I could to recapture the full story, but I wouldn't say the full story will ever be captured. Right, right. But it's important. It's an important, you know, story. It's an important piece of the puzzle, um, you know, and for people to know the history of where they are today, you know. And we obviously we still have a long way to go in many ways, but I think it's important for people to know where things were before um, and the people who really risked a lot to get us to this place is really important. And it's important to the families. Uh, I think you, you, you know by reading the book that I worked to get a monument built to Willie Long and the 21s in a park on the shipyard. Long, uh, difficult uh, 
journey, but we got the monument put in place. And for the unveiling, all the families were invited. So there were about 80 people there, including some um, mm. children and grandchildren of the original 21ers. They had never heard the story, and it was, they told me, one of the great events of their life. Mm-hmm. You see Willie and the other 21ers honored there. And that monument, I hope, will stand forever. It's there with a lot of other important monuments to the history of the Navy at Maryland in a prominent place. And uh, uh, it, that is probably, to me, the best thing that I've ever done is to, to get that monument mm-hmm. built. That's wonderful. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, um, could you tell us what, you know, maybe you can tell us the history of that naval shipyard. Was that, I think you said that was the first naval shipyard? Uh, the building of the shipyard started in the 1850s, and it became a great shipyard, uh, one of the most important on the West Coast for sure. And to the extent that during World War II, there were probably 40,000 people there working 24 hours a day. Uh, very important shipyard. And uh, after the, the Second World War, a little later, then they started building nuclear submarines, which I worked on building. And uh, many of the, uh, the leaders of the, uh, the 21 movement worked in Shop 56, which was the pipe fitters shop. And a lot of what goes into it, the building of nuclear submarines is piping. And so mm-hmm. it, it was a very important shipyard uh, for many, many years. And it's it's still active. It's not a naval shipyard now, but it's still active. But there's a lot more going on there now than shipbuilding and, and ship maintenance. But a very, very important shipyard. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a really it's a really historical site and it's wonderful that you oh, had yeah. your you had that statue there. Yeah, that's an honor. Um, and I read that you um, that you use you the research that you did for this book. You were you were was part of your research for your doctoral studies. Do you have a doctorate now? No, I was working on a doctorate, but uh, you know, after a while, I, I started thinking, you know, what am I going to do with this doctorate when I get it? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good. I, that's I, a good I, question. I've had a, <laughs> I've had a consulting business now for uh, close to forty years, and mm-hmm. nobody's going to give me a contract because I have a PhD. Right. Uh, I was just. But you have your master's in history. What's that? Yeah. That was kind of a, that was an extension of master's. I uh, mm. I didn't go to high school, and uh, you know I, I went into the military when I was fifteen years old. And when I came back to the mm-hmm. military is when I went to work in the shipyard. And I thought that at the time that I was going to work in the shipyard and retire from there. But after a while, some of the older guys encouraged me to leave and get an education. And what they said was, uh, if you stay here, you're going to get, you know, you're going to start a family, and then you won't be able to leave because you you have so much responsibility. So I did leave and, and went on and back to the school. And eventually graduated from San Francisco State University with a BA and an MA in history, and uh, which is one of the things that gave me the idea of writing the history of the 21ers. Some of the mm-hmm. history that I studied uh, uh, to get those degrees 
but for all practical purposes, useless. Um, but it did give me an understanding of history, and it gave me the belief that what we did was historical. Now, when mm-hmm. we started organizing and uh, the other things that we did to make this movement happen, none of us thought of it as being historic. It was just a way for us to get paid fairly and to get fair promotions, right? None of us thought it was right. historical. It was probably the reason that none of us really took notes. So, mm-hmm. uh, so after mm-hmm. I, I, you know, after the, the master's degree, and when I was writing the story of the Twenty Winners, the guy at the Western Institute for Social Research told me that I should get a PhD, and I agreed. Then I started working on the PhD, and then I, again I asked myself the question, "What am I going to do with it?" Right. So uh, that was the end of the PhD. But you got a book out of it from the research. Yes. And, I, and I'll write some more. Great, right. great. Right. So, what are you doing right now? What what do you have a you have your own labor management consultant company? We do two things. Um, one is we negotiate and manage what are called project labor agreements, and what they are are essentially master labor agreements for covering large projects where the owner wants to have stability. No one any strikes, no one any slowdowns, no any lockouts. So our company negotiates agreements with the uh, building trades that are going to work on the project, and they agree that the contractors who sign the agreement have to also agree to it. And then we monitor compliance with it. One of the innovative things that we do with the project labor agreements, which have been around at least going back to the Hoover Dam, we write in requirements that local residents get a fair share of the jobs. And, of course, Mm. uh, we have in mind the fact that a lot of local residents in a city like Oakland are African Americans. And they have been for years and still are to a great extent discriminated against in the building trade. So mm-hmm. we write language that requires that the contractor hire local workers from very distinct areas, zip codes. And, mm-hmm. and that's the way we assure that in Americans and other minorities and women get a fair share of the jobs. The other side of the business is monitoring compliance with what they call prevailing wage. And that is to assure that workers who work on the project get paid a fair wage. Again, we don't want workers to be taken into the unions and then not paid a fair wage. So those are the two things primarily that I do. Right. So it sounds pretty much like an extension of what you started back in on Mare Island. <laughs> it absolutely is. All the knowledge that I have dealing with the unions, and I, and I became a union member, um, all that knowledge started with me working at Mare Island with the great men that I worked with there, the 21ers, who I think of all the great people that I've met in my life, and I've met many, they are the greatest. They, they influence mm-hmm. me a lot. A lot of what I do is, is my way of giving back and paying for what they gave to me. Mm-hmm. That is such an interesting story, and it's really an honor to talk to somebody who was you know, right there, involved in it right from the beginning and getting, you know, 
in in an important piece of that of that struggle and um so I'm really really happy to have you on this program um I I love, I love the opportunity really appreciate it um, so I think you saw in the book I I read I spoke that um there's an old African saying that uh, when an elder dies, a library is burned. When I die, yeah. I want at least a part of my library to stand, and that is the part about the original 21. I want that story to be known and told forever. Mm-hmm. That's, that is a, a, a really great – I mean, I think I think that's a great thing to do. Because, like you said, a lot of the stories die with the people, and we don't, yeah. we, you know, these are really important stories. So so how can people find out more about you, about your company, and also about how they can buy the book? Well, if you, uh, the best way to find out about me and, and the other 21 is to read, read the book. And they can okay. buy the book at bookshop.org, or they can buy it on Amazon, or you can buy it from the publisher, Arcadia Publishing. Either of them would be fine. And you can, you'll learn a lot about Jake Sloan, maybe more than you want to know. Right. Okay. And what you learn about these great men. Uh, I work with some really great men, and I, I'm forever thankful for that opportunity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to post the links to those ways of of buying the book so that um, when people go to my website later tonight, I'll do that later tonight, um, if they go to the, the post about this show, that'll be there and they can just click on it and it'll take them to those different sites. Okay? If it's not inappropriate, uh, I can give you my phone number and email address, and they can reach out to me that way. Um, if you're comfortable with that, we can do that, sure. Okay, my email address is simple, Jake Sloan, J-A-K-E-S-L-O-A-N, all one word, lowercase, at AOL.com. My number is 510 Four two, and I look All forward right. to talking with anyone who's interested in the subject. Okay, wonderful. So I'll post those as well, as long as that's all right with you. I'll put that on the post. Okay, yeah, great. All right. Well, thank you so much again for being here this evening, and and um, I'd love to have you back on when you when you want to tell the next story. Well, I do have a, another story coming up. I'm going to write a, about the, the people that I grew up with in Richmond who have never received any fame for anything, and some of them were really great human beings, and I'm, I want to tell that story. Uh, and by the okay. way, of the, of the 25, 21ers, eight of them came from Richmond. Oh, wow. I grew up. Okay. And uh, uh-huh. there were a lot of great people, and their, their, their story has never been told, and I want to tell at least a part of it. All right. Well, reach out to me when you're when you're working on that, so we can have you back on the program to talk about it. Okay. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity, Mara. All right. 
And and you have a very good evening. Okay, same a to wonderful you and, week. Same to you and everyone in the audience. All right, thanks. Bye-bye now. Bye. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Dr. Mara's book, The Passionate Life, Creating Vitality and Joy at Any Age, is now available on Kindle and in paperback at Amazon. Don't forget to listen to Dr. Mara Carpell and your golden years live from Austin, Texas, every Sunday on blogtalkradio.com. Please visit us on the web at www.drmaracarpell.com. All right, and we are back. If you're just joining us, this is Dr. Mara Carpell and your golden years right here on blogtalkradio.com and on drmaracarpell.com. And we have just a few minutes left um, to follow up after that really really interesting interview with Jake Sloan. I will be posting all of that information on my website so you can see how to buy his book and how to get in touch with him. There are also some really nice pictures in here so you can get to see all of the people that he talks about in the book, Um, even some historical pictures, so recent and historical. So I'll be posting that later this evening. So in the last program, I started to talk about this new journey that I have found myself on and um, trying to find passion and purpose after losing the person that I was the healthcare advocate for, my mom, and about how difficult that is. It's 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 not just grief. It's also about re reinventing myself. Um, and I think that um, people who um, spend a, a lot of time caregiving for someone or advocating for a loved one in the healthcare system, um, when that person is gone, they find themselves in this position. It's not just about the grief. It is definitely about grief, but it's also about, okay, you know, I felt so much passion about what I was doing. I really immersed myself in it, and it just ended. So I wanted, I recently wrote a blog about it uh, just a few days ago. So um, if you want to read that blog, you can find it on my website, drmaricarpel.com. And um, I think it's not very long, but it really tells, um, I think it tells the whole story of what we find ourselves in, um, the, me and my fellow caregivers. And I want to start with the ending of the blog um, because it's not the least important point of the of the blog, but it was at the end, and it was re-quoted by someone on LinkedIn who read my blog. And that is, um, the job of advocating for a loved one who is immersed in the healthcare system or in long-term care is a necessary one. Without loving advocates, those who cannot speak for themselves, and especially older adults, often suffer the consequences of ageism and ableism 
leading to a quality of life that is less than ideal. Sometimes, as I wrote about in my blog, ageism in health in healthcare, the dark the dark side of hospice, it can lead to the ending of the life of someone who still has more stories to tell. Such advocacy is noble and purposeful is a noble and purposeful role to play. However, it's important to remember that the loss of passion and purpose experienced by those of us who suddenly lose that job when our loved one suddenly dies is real. And the first step toward healing is often awareness. And the second is being seen. So I want to tell you that if you've lost your way after losing someone whom you care for, whom you were caring for, I see you. And I hope to see you again as we make it to the light. And so the person who quoted me on LinkedIn added an equally important commentary about it. And it's not just for family members to remember, but for the medical providers and those who work in long-term care, it's really important for them to understand that the advocacy by the family is nothing other than an act of love. And I think that sometimes um, that's forgotten by the people who work in long-term care. They tend to see the advocates as adversaries. And I was not an adversary of the people who took care of my mom. I was acting uh, out of love for my mom. And if they were there to take care of my mom because they cared, then we were on the same page. So so let me back up here a bit. Um, you know, having a purpose that we feel passionate about is, can be what gets us through the darkest parts of our grief, um, especially after losing a loved one or dealing with the issues that are going on in the world. And I know that was the case for me. I wrote about it in my book, The Passionate Life. Um, when I lost my dad over eight years ago, um, the grief was tough. I missed him a lot, but I had several projects that kept me focused on my purpose and that I knew that he wanted me, my dad wanted me to complete. I was just starting my radio program at that time to help other people find their passion, this radio show. And I was in the early days of writing that book, The Passionate Life. Um, but now when I look back, I realize that I had the highest purpose of all of making sure my mom was okay during that time because not only had she lost her husband, but she was also dealing with her own increasing physical limitations and was requiring more care. And I can see more clearly now when I look back that that purpose of advocating for my mom's care um, so that she could have the best quality of life was probably the, one of the most powerful factors that helped me to heal after the loss of my dad. So that when my mom passed, it was a different story. Um, that my world felt like the rug had been pulled out from under me. And of course we know our parents are going to die. That's, that's the way things happen 
ideally our parents die before we do. That's the order of things. And my mom was, you know, she would be 95 next week. So she wasn't young. But it's still a pretty dramatic um, change, especially if you've been close with the person that you care for and if you've been involved in their care um, heavily, as as heavily as I was. Um, So as I mentioned last show, since my mom passed away in October, I've been looking for resources to help people like myself, books to read and um, online seminars and groups for for people such as myself who were caregivers or health advocates for their loved ones who passed and who found purpose and passion in doing that um, and then finding that that purpose died when our loved one died. And I haven't found the resources specifically for us. Most resources that I found are for self-help, um, bereavement group books, groups or online seminars and they're directly um, are directed specifically toward grief but while the grief is an important part of the picture it's not the whole picture Um, it's a much more complicated picture for someone who's been advocating or caregiving Um, there's a sudden loss of this role that we played For me, it was an honor to be able to be there for my mom in that way, and I have found that only those who really have been in that situation truly understand it. Um, My, I'm sure if you've been listening to my program or reading my blogs, you know that my mom's care became a very big part of my daily life. At times, it demanded more of me, especially after she moved into skilled nursing care. Um, I wasn't alone. My brothers were involved, especially my brother who was close to us. But I was the one who um, became very involved daily with her um, when she moved into the nursing home. Plus, um, she and I spoke every day on Zoom. And since COVID, we started speaking on Zoom every single day. And um, I visited her more and more frequently. So we became a lot closer during that time as I became more involved in her care. And her care became a bigger and bigger job. And it became almost like a second full-time job. And it was stressful at times, but it was also really, really rewarding, and I wouldn't have given it up. Um, As you know, if you've been listening, I started a family council at her facility, a virtual family council through Zoom, and they've continued on without me. (laughs) Um, But while, while I was part of it, we accomplished a lot to improve the quality of life for the residents in her facility. And then suddenly, as quick as the snap of your fingers, it all stopped when my mom suddenly passed. Um, So in addition to meeting, missing my mom, who I was very close with, I also lost this job. And 
One of the things that I have found to be helpful in starting to find passion again is looking at what what I learned during that time and how to use that um, to regain passion and continue with some of the passion that I that I uh, connected with during that time that I the things that I became passionate about. Um, such as dealing with ageism in the healthcare system and in long-term care. That my mom really reawakened that for me because although that was something I was always interested in and I um, always had a connection to um, since I started working in the field of psychology and, and working with older adults, um, but having my mom in that system really um, made the issues much more clear than they ever could have been just working as a professional. Like I really saw things that I wouldn't have seen. And I became really passionate about it. So I'm, I'm using that now. I'm redirecting that toward helping other people um, who are caring for their elderly parents and, and for all of us. So that maybe when we grow older, the healthcare system will be a little bit better, a little less ageist. No, we can always hope. <laughs> um, the other, the other thing is I've been trying to uh, remember the lessons that I learned through my mom's life, and I've been writing those on social media. I will be writing a blog about some of those lessons and one lesson that really um, this is the last lesson that I wrote on social media and it's really important right now with everything going on in the world and the news just feels so chaotic Um, but my mom really taught me um, I'm still trying to learn it I haven't learned it yet but I still remind myself she really taught me not to dwell in the negative she lived through a lot of a lot in her life I and mean, she was born in 1929 so she was around for many things the great depression world war ii um all of the chaos here in the united states and around the world and she learned to, to get through it she was really resilient and she would often say to me, don't make yourself sick over things you can't change. And she would always um, remind me that life is about balance. So she would ask me what was going on in the news if she hadn't watched it, or she'd ask details that she didn't, that she didn't understand or hadn't heard. If it was something upsetting, she would have a strong reaction. She would get angry. Sometimes she used some colorful language. But then she was quick to say, okay, now tell me something good. If somebody did something that she didn't like, she would let them know. But then she would forgive. She didn't hold grudges. Um, when When we talked on Zoom, she would always remind me to balance um, the good with the bad. So, again, 
don't make yourself sick over it. I hear her saying that in, yeah, constantly when I get too far down the rabbit hole of uh, watching or reading about all the turmoil in the world. And she told me that, you know, all of the things she had been through, she muddled through as she described it by looking for the positive and not getting stuck in the negative. And she knew that as much as there was sadness, there was always light as well and that we needed to focus on the light because otherwise we were not going to get through. So that's a really big lesson. Um, I think that it helps us in dealing with what's going on in the world. It's also a lesson in getting through this issue of losing her and losing the person that I cared for and helping to create a new passion and purpose now that I've lost that job. So I hope that in writing these blogs, and I will continue to write as I move toward healing on this journey, I hope that I can help um, any listeners or readers out there um, who are going through the same thing, because I do think it's a unique position to be in. But there are a lot of us who are in this position, and we do need to find each other and a way to get through this um, in a in a healing way rather than have it just be an open wound or cause us to feel like our mean our life has no meaning that's not a good thing um, this whole show is about um, finding meaning and passion in life because that's what helps us to remain healthy and joyful and vital. Okay, so um, I think I've said enough. And before we go, let me let you know what's going on in the next couple of weeks. Next week, Sunday, February 4th, we'll be playing an encore of one of our recent favorites. And then on Sunday, February 11th, we'll be back with another live program. And we'll be joined by Michelle Young Dewars, who wrote the book, Killing for Profit, The Dark Side of Hospice. Uh, Michelle is a respiratory therapist who served for five years on the ethics committees of four major hospitals. She was a clinical instructor. She worked on the front lines of healthcare during the SARS outbreak and the swine flu outbreak. And in her work, she has played an important role in the living and or dying of patients with prolonged illnesses and the decisions about hospice. Um, I want to say that the point of her book, which I've read part of so far, is not to say that hospice is bad. And in our discussion, um, she said to me, the idea, the concept of hospice is great, but it is a big business and not all hospices are the same. So it's really important to know the other side of the issues the things that you aren't told um, when you're making a huge decision so that you can make a good decision about this very life-altering issue of whether to have someone go on hospice or not without being marketed to or manipulated. 
And if you read my blog about my experience, um, which you can find again on my website, you can hear my story about that, which which is a really important part of what Michelle talks about. Um, all right, and if you want to hear tonight's program again and read the information from this show, get those website links that we talked about or listen to previous programs, go to my website, drmaracarpel.com. You can also listen to this evening's program in as soon as five minutes from now by going directly to Blog Talk Radio, B-L-O-G, talkradio.com slash Your Golden Years. And you can listen on Apple Podcasts in five minutes. Be sure to follow me on Facebook to see what's coming up by going to Dr. Mara Carpell, Your Golden Years. This show was produced by Accomplice Entertainment and Psyched Up Productions. And I want to thank my guest, Jake Sloan, and thank you to Art. Thank you all for listening. Have a peaceful night, an inspiring couple of weeks. And remember, youth has no age. Good night, everyone. Stay safe. Comes a time when you're all alone Comes a time, gotta write that song May not make any sense at all But it's up to you, keep a smile on your face Now I've been young mostly every day Just like you, don't you ever change Cause this world's getting pretty old And it's up to you a smile on your face, butterflies down, butterflies down, butterflies down, now don't forget who wrote you this song, cause there'll be times you'll feel all alone in this world, so Greg don't forget this song. Any guidance offered by Dr. Carpell is not intended to replace the advice of your own physician or mental health specialist. Neither Dr. Carpell, her sponsors, nor this station assumes responsibility for the misuse of any information on this program. <laughs>